This is Nomina's Mental Health Mavens, where each week we bring you guests from the mental health and holistic care community to talk about different mental health issues and treatment modalities. Now, guest opinions are their own, and some content might be triggering. Like today, we are talking to Dan Kalko, who is a registered sex therapist with Nomina Integrated Health in Winnipeg, and we are talking about desire disorder. So we're going to be talking about sex. And with that, let's welcome Dan. So a desire disorder is, um, it can be put fairly simply. We have a, the, the, there's a very complex drawn out mechanism for diagnosing desire disorder, but essentially it's some, a person who has lost the desire for sexual intimacy or sexual intercourse for a period of six months or longer. So that includes no desire to want to have sex, no sexual fantasies, no sexual desire whatsoever. It's kind of like an absence of anything um, in the interest of of sex or sexual intimacy. And what causes this? So there's a lot of different things that can cause it. um, And it will be specific for each person. So each person will have a different trigger for it. But um, relationship problems is a big one where uh, perhaps there is something that happens that breaks trust in a relationship that causes one partner to lose desire in the other partner and therefore they lose desire in themselves because there's a lot of other things going on underneath the surface which make it very difficult to focus on sex or sexual intimacy. There's also medication issues that come in so a common side effect that a lot of people don't know about is that antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications, antipsychotic medications, often have a component that pushes down libido, pushes down that sexual desire. So many people who start on common antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications find that they lose desire or interest in sex. Uh, and there's other things too, stress, trauma, um, uh, could be even nutrition, um, Injury, erectile dysfunction, a lot of those things can lead to a desire disorder. Why do we call it a disorder? So again, this is where you go back to the way that it's defined. So it has to be defined, like I said, as a lack of desire um, that that, um, extends for a period of six months or more, and it causes a problem to the person or the people involved. So if you're, let's say, in the scenario where maybe you were in a traumatic accident and uh, you had, I don't know, physical injuries, but before you had a, what you would consider a healthy, normal sex life. After this, let's say it was a car accident with maybe a pelvic uh, fracture or something. There's a lot going on in that accident where you have physical issues, but you also have psychological issues in terms of what happened during that traumatic event. And afterwards, when you recover physically, you still don't have that desire to have that go back to that level right obviously if you have a broken hip and you're in a cast and in the in the hospital it's could be hard to want to want to have sex with people like some people still do but it might be hard you, one can imagine that it would be hard but when everything goes back to kind of healthy he, healed and healed if that's not there that's when the person identifies hey i want to have more sex or there's a part of me that wants to have more sexual intimacy I don't have the the backing up of my body and my mind to get me there, right? Because desire and arousal starts in the mind before it happens in the body. And if it doesn't, if it can't start in the mind, it's going to be hard to start in the body. 
or to, to progress into the body, I mean. So that's where the person in that scenario would probably start to seek out help, probably their family physician uh, at first, their family doctor, and say, hey, this is a problem that I'm having. Uh, what do you recommend? And this is where the doctor might recommend certain medications or to seek somebody who's, uh, who's an expert in sexual health. Okay. Now, you had mentioned diagnosing it. Uh, so what are some of the signs of it and how would you get a diagnosis? Yeah, so I, I kind of mentioned the main ones there. So it's a lack or interest in sex that lasts longer than six months. And it's broken down into like in the in the DSM-5, it's broken down to male and female. Uh, they're pretty similar uh, in terms of what it is, but it's essentially no thoughts or actions or desires for anything sex related. So that's, like I said, sexual intimacy, not always penetrative sex, but often includes penetrative sex, those kind of things. And you get diagnosed by somebody who is capable of making a diagnosis. So generally, a psychiatrist or psychologist. Okay. And then what would would treatment look like for it? So again, it would depend on what the trigger is, right? So if it was a trauma, then working psychologically with with the nature of the trauma and and uh, making progress in terms of what that traumatic event is oftentimes relieves a lot of that desire disorder and we find that healthy libido comes back not all the way not right away and not um in one chunk like it's it's a progressive desire increase but it can help through psychology Uh, if it's a relationship problem then you're going to want to see either individual and or couples counseling uh, in order to figure out what is the problem the underlying problem that's causing that wall to go up between partners uh, and so we just have to address each cause with its kind of respective um, solution. Because we did t- t- touch on medication, but um, I want to talk about hormone replacement and how that can help and, and, you know, a little bit more in detail in terms of some of the medications. For sure. So it's best to back up there and figure out uh at the beginning when we talked about what is the cause of this desire disorder. So it's kind of like um, the, the the therapists are a little bit of like a private investigator or like a, uh, um, what do they call the police, police investigators, right? A detective. That's what it is, detective. And so you kind of work with the client to figure out what has been happening in their life that may be the cause of this. And one of the main things that I know I do and a lot of other therapists do is we try to rule out uh, medical, like actual medical causes. Like for example, for uh, erectile dysfunction, is the artery that supplies blood to the penis still working? Is it still functional? Is there a blood pressure issue, right? Nitric oxide is a big component in maintaining erections. Is that still being developed in proper uh, proportions to maintain, to develop and maintain an erection. If the co- if the answer is yes, one of those things is causing it, then we want to seek, uh, like seek a response to it, right? So if the the artery is damaged, we want to repair the artery. Oftentimes, that'll fix the the fix the problem, right? It'll resolve the erectile dysfunction problem. Uh, for for things like hormone issues. Uh, you want to do a blood panel, so blood tests. That's where you work in concert with your family doctor or psychiatrist to figure out what those levels are because we have nominal ranges of those levels. So estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, we all have, men and women, all have kind of a higher and a lower limit of those of those main sex characteristic hormones. There are others, but uh, if one of these things is happening, then a blood test can be very helpful at either ruling out or identifying 
a hormonal issue within a person that's struggling with a desire disorder. Because if if there's a man that has extremely low testosterone, energy will be low, the lack of desire will be low, sexual function will be low, uh, increasing chances of gaining uh, fatty tissue, uh, becoming obese. Those are all kind of side effects of low testosterone for men. Uh, and a lot of men, when they get identi- when they get diagnosed with low testosterone, start taking artificial testosterone, all of those things kind of bounce back because it goes back within that nominal range and, and their body functions as you would expect it to when the hormone levels are kind of at their at the that person's baseline or above. Same with women too, estrogen and progesterone. They're huge. And even testosterone in women is important and in the same way that estrogen is important in men too, just in different ratios. So if there's low estrogen, it's going to be hard to have desire because it's it triggers um, vaginal secretions and lubrication and, and blood flow. All of those things happen to like the genital region. Those are important, just, just as important for men as they are for women or the other way, just as important for women as it is for men. There we go. Yeah, so yeah, and that's a bit, that's a really good example of that is that those hormones they take a so they change, they fluctuate, they take a while to stabilize. Ideally, they do stabilize in the postmenopausal women, and then you can figure out what the what the effects are of that because you've you've been here, you got kind of wacky there for a little while and being very technical here. And then there's a new level and we have, you have to figure out what that new level is. And some women find that their libido goes down, and some find that it goes up, and some find that it's that it doesn't change. And it all depends on the person. And that's where you have to kind of ask yourself those questions and have those open conversations if you have a partner or partners or whatever that looks like. And then even just with your family physician to go, hey, I'm postmenopausal and I want to have sex more, but I don't feel like it. Well, then let's do a blood panel and find out what your hormone levels are at. And there are other medications too that that have been kind of developed for increasing desire um but those tend to be like they tend to not have the greatest efficacy they do work but usually when we rule out the the physical issues it's usually a psychological issue that's the underlying factor and you'd mentioned something off camera about kegels yes so kegels are a really great exercise for increasing strength in the pelvic floor muscles but they also so as you increase strength you increase blood flow and as we kind of mentioned, increased blood flow in the general region is a direct relate. It's directly related to increasing that physical sexual response. And you can stimulate those in your partner and in yourself even by doing things like uh, gently running your hand up the inner thigh of somebody or your own inner thigh if you if you're trying to figure that out. Those are erogenous zones that are designed to increase blood flow in those areas. So that tactile response will bring focus and attention, but also the blood flow that responded. And so Kegels can be really important at not only strengthening pelvic floor uh, health, but also increasing that blood flow and then having the, the kind of follow-on effect of having more blood flow in an erogenous zone increases um, erotic thoughts and, and arousal and physical arousal. And that can be helpful too. It's one of the exercises that we sometimes give to couples is to, to, to go into erogenous zones or or avoid erogenous zones, sometimes the avoidance, so touch, avoiding erogenous zones, uh, erogenous zone can be very um, enticing and stimulating. So there's there's exercises that your therapist might give you as a couple if the the, the couple is is suffering from a desire disorder, trying to get back into more of an increased kind of sexual intimacy place. 
That's fascinating. It makes sense yeah. though, you know, that you get the you get the tingly and then you're thinking tingly. Yeah, exactly. You go. Yeah. Our body's a great feedback mechanism and it either starts in the brain and goes in the body or goes in the body and can come up to the brain and, and it likes to bounce back and forth. And that's the time that couples and people, individuals are are enjoying sexual intimacy the most is when their mind and their body are on board at the same time. Because a sexual act is very physical, but sexual intimacy is a very emotional piece. And one of the reasons why, incidentally, a lot of people are having um, very disappointing um, relationships these days because it's very physical and not very emotional. And that's unfortunate because you need both in order to create a sustainable relationship that lasts months, years, decades I imagine it's different for men than it is for women, because I know a lot of women who after childbirth, you've got the kids hanging off of you all day. You've got all your responsibilities. You're trying to work. And at the end of the day is don't touch me. Whereas men, a lot of the men I know, it's because they're having uh, erectile functional issues and they just they don't even want to try anymore. Yeah. And those are the things that become uh, they're kind of acute things that add up to create a new behavior. And the parental one is a great example, like, like you mentioned, for women. But for parents in general, I find that by when the kids are very young, by the time everything gets finished at the end of the day and the kids are finally asleep and fingers crossed they sleep through the night and, and maybe they haven't for the past two weeks, it's very, very hard to have excess energy for something like sexual intimacy or sexual intercourse. And a lot of new parents find that their the number of times that they have sex, the number of times they are intimate decreases in those first few years. But part of the problem becomes that becomes a new behavior. So if a human does something often enough, it becomes a new kind of the new normal, so to speak. And so if you spend, let's say, I don't know, two years or three years exhausted and not having sex, it's really hard to go back to what kind of pre-pregnancy and pre-kid intimacy was like because you've now established a new normal and this also applies to sleep patterns where sleep patterns get disrupted in those first two to three years of life especially if your child doesn't sleep well and that can last into the 60s and 70s and 80s for people because they've they've created a new normal uh, and that's where we want to try to reestablish with especially with intimacy like a roadmap to getting back to intimate and oftentimes this includes especially for my clients going back to what got them together in the first place. Now, having kids is that kind of like biological endpoint where good job, all the neurochemicals in your brain have made you together have a baby. Like good job, species, propagation, and all that good stuff. But all of those behaviors that created that couple, that got that couple together, those can be rekindled oftentimes through a very similar process of like meeting somebody. So going out on dates and talking and having deep conversations and becoming intimate like before you become sexually intimate, becoming intimate in terms of emotionally intimate uh, and in, in your personal space. And it's usually a progression. It's not like, hey, the the prescription now that you finally are getting sleep is to have sex 10 times a week. That that doesn't work, especially if the, the biology doesn't function that way. Well, generally, it, you have uh, a couple and one of the couple is has lost their desire yet the other one still has theirs. so how would you approach that other person and say hey maybe we could talk to somebody about this and that's a good point that you bring up because 
um, a mismatched sexual desire issue is not a desire disorder, not necessarily. Um, it is very common that couples, partners, whatever kind of relationship dynamic exists, there will be varying levels of, of desire with those people. Like the number of different people there are in the world, that's the number of different desire like levels that people have. So it is fairly common that couples run into this. And this is where figuring out from each side of that, it's assuming it's like a, it is a couple, what is kind of driving the, the desire discrepancy. Um, and oftentimes as couples counselors, we look at, has it always been like this or has something changed recently that has changed, that has affected the relationship? Um, so couples that get together early and they have a, a very widespread desire kind of template, that's something that you can mitigate through um, through conversations, through a scheduled play. Oftentimes a couple's counselor is involved in this because it's unfair of a couple who has the high desire to ask the other side of, with low desire to increase it. And it's also unfair for the low desire person to expect the high desire person to come down. Oftentimes there's a happy medium where both people can feel like they're, they're able to kind of contribute to the kind of the, the relationship in ways that they feel good about. And as we know with relationships, it's all about compromise. It's all about conversation. It's all about communication. And it can be, it can stem from anything to who takes out the garbage and does the dishes to how much sex do you have in a, in a relationship. And, we have to always remember that it's not just about us, right? It's not just about the one person in a couple, because when you enter into a couple type relationship, you've made a commitment to like the relationship as this like new entity. And what does that mean? And sometimes that means having more or less sex than perhaps that you want to. Sometimes it means doing more or less dishes than maybe you wanted to, or vacuuming or picking up the kids or whatever, right? It's all about compromise. Now, we talked about when they're out of whack, but what about both partners? Say both partners have a complete lack of desire. And it's very hard, like in this kind of theoretical example, to figure out why, right? What What are the reasons? Has this always been like that? Is this their no version of normal? And the main issue, and especially when we go back to how you define a desire disorder, is does it cause a problem, right? So if you have a low desire and your partner has a low desire and you have sex once a year, but everybody's happy with that. Is there a problem there? That's the first question that we ask. There is no normal amount of sex. It's not five times a week. It's not 10 times a week. It's not two times a week. It's not once a month. It's not once a year. There is no level of, of normal there. So if people like to have sex once a day, 52 weeks a year, then that, and they're both happy with that and, and they have good lube, then, then they're good. But if, uh, if they like to have sex on their birthday, and that's it. And that's enough for them. And they're happy with that, like truly happy. It doesn't cause relationship issues. There's no strife. There's no, there's no conflict. Who are we to say that that's wrong? And that's what we, we want to really normalize. And that's kind of what I try to put out there is normalize for people that any number of sexual intimacy encounters is, is normal, as long as it feels normal. Perfect. Well, thank you. Anything you want to say in closing? I did want to bring, okay, so I like, as you know, I like to come at a lot of things from that evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology perspective. And one of the things that we know about anxiety, that fight, flight, or freeze response, is that 
it shuts down all kind of non-essential systems in the body. So that includes digestion, that includes a bunch of sensation, actually. So you lose sensation, um, but it can also shut down um, sexual function because if you're being chased by a tiger or a bear, the last thing on your mind is probably wanting to have sex. So if somebody, if a person is struggling with a lot of anxiety or depression, a lot of that fight, flight, or freeze response, it is very common that they lose that desire for that sexual intimacy, that sexual expression, that sexual intercourse, just because the brain doesn't have time for it. It's redirected resources away from it. And anybody suffering from an anxiety disorder that lasts longer than six months may also be uh, diagnosed with a desire disorder. They kind of stem from each other. Um, And this is where open communication with whoever you're talking to, your psychiatrist or psychologist, is important. Because if all you come to the meeting with is, I don't have any desire, yet you've been struggling with anxiety for many years, those are very related. And sometimes people can get misdiagnosed if they're not open and honest, but also if the the therapist or the person doing the the assessment doesn't ask the right questions, so it's important to understand what you're going for, what you, what you want, um, or what you're trying to get back to. Hey, this there's a period in my in my early days where I was aroused all the time and I was having a lot of healthy, uh, safe sex, and and now I don't have that anymore. What's changed? What's happened? How how can I go back to that? Also, age plays a factor, so. Um, as you get older, hormones decrease, certain of the, the sex hormones decrease, so both in men and women. So it is natural for libido to decrease in age, but not always. Uh, one of the fun stats that I like to throw out there is that uh, STI rates uh, kind of peak in the, like the late teens, early 20s, and then they steadily decrease until they start to go up again in the 60s. And they kind of peak again in like between 60 and 70, and then they start to go down again. So that's that's just to say that there's a lot of people of all ages having sex, and that's not always about the desire. I worked in the senior sector for a number of years, and it's true. The STD rate at the, at the home was out of control. <laughs> you can find that there's desire that to be found, and you can re rediscover your desire if you've if you've lost it or if it's gone away. And oftentimes it means making changes um, in the periphery, right? A good, healthy uh, diet is very important. Obesity is one of the the leading causes of, or one of the leading things that affects erectile dysfunction, for for example, right? So too much weight can cause, um, can inhibit certain hormones from being produced in the body, uh, or it can create too many other hormones. And sometimes they interfere with the ones that create desire for us. So what do you do when you can't make it work? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a hard one for people because they go, the couples therapist is going to fix our relationship. No, that's that's not what the couples therapist does. The couples therapist helps you find common ground and helps you work on things if you want to stay together. But ultimately, if you're different people with very different desire uh, levels and very different personalities and very different goals, um, it becomes very hard to stay together when people are going this way, right? Most couples want to, like, maybe not perfectly in line, but they're heading towards the right direction. And, and that's what you can make work. But there has to be commonality. When you get past the lust phase, the love phase becomes harder to establish and reinforce. And and I tell a lot of my couples all the time, just because you're coming to see me doesn't mean that you're going to stay together. Sometimes, actually, it means that you're probably going to go apart. But if that happens, we want to do it in a very mature, respectful, compassionate way. 
and um, I'm trying to think about even my own statistics about how many couples have stayed together and and it's not it's not close to 100% but the people are happier right and ultimately that's what we're going for is if the couple can't be happy well then the individuals that made up the couple can can still lead happy healthy lives just with other people and that's okay it's okay to um have your relationship end right it's it's like anything right all right well thank you very much dan i look forward to the next topic (laughs) for sure yeah me too